This is Mark Stein. Winter is a big blah, so it's time to get out of town with the ultimate cabin fever reliever. Join me on the 2024 Mark Stein Caribbean Cruise, sailing from Florida to the Bahamas, Jamaica, the Caymans, and Mexico for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Britain, Europe, the House of Lords. And we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Second, 2024, in America's diseased and depraved capital city, it is 3 p.m. Deep State Standard Time, 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30 p.m. in fabulous Newfoundland and beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiel, oh, I can't do it, and Tel Aviv, oh, that was even worse, uh, 11 p.m. in Yemen. For all you Hooties, Hootie Hooting out there, 11.30pm in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved around for the half-hour time zone, 1.45am in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 4am in Singapore and Honkers. Sorry about that. 7am in Sydney and Melbourne. Still kind of sorry. 9am in Auckland and Wellington. A rather more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeree. And even deeper into the weekend in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific, where you're so far ahead. My trial is undoubtedly over by now, and you're all laughing at the guilty verdict. Greetings from my Washington hotel room. At the end of my third week here, happy Groundhog Day. Punxsutawney Phil came out of his burrow and foresaw another six weeks of total bollocks from Michael E. Mann and his shifty lawyers. This was the day I was supposed to fly out of this miserable city upon completion of the trial. But alas, tis not to be. I'm even sicker than I was this time last week of the room service menu and the rigours of this awful, awful leaden ritual continue to take their toll. I don't like to complain, really. I don't, you know, I don't. But nobody in this town seems to know how to mix a drink. Mix the simplest drink. Uh, nevertheless, I will endeavour to go to the distance today. Man versus Simberg and Stein. It's in courtroom 132 
at the District of Columbia Superior Court on Monday morning. We were promoted from the rancid sweatbox of room 518 to what looks like a passable imitation of a real courtroom. The defence will resume its case with a Dr Judith Curry, vilely traduced by man on the stand. He's an ugly misogynist creep, uh, to be blunt about it. But Judith will be back in the witness box Monday at 9.30am. Don't forget, coming up in March... Of the King's Bench Division of the High Court in London, it's Stein versus Ofcom. And in between those twin trials of the century, we should have just enough time to squeeze in the Mark Stein Caribbean cruise, dear Michelle Bachman, who has been a rock of support this last fortnight, will be there. Uh, she's been very kindly pushing my wheelchair to the car so I can get the hell out of the courthouse at the end of each day. Michelle is always a big hit on our cruise. She's wonderful company, as you'll discover if you go to MarkSteinCruise.com. Uh, 900 years ago today, that would be the 2nd of February, 1124. Borivoy II, sometime Duke of Bohemia, died in exile in Hungary. Uh, 900 years ago today, he had held the ducal throne at various points in the previous 15 years in between internecine struggles with his brother Vladislaus and cousin Zvatopluk. Those were the days. Those were the days. 10 years ago, 2nd of February 2014, the actor Philip Seymour Hoffman was found dead in his bathroom with a syringe in his arm and heroin, cocaine and a lot of other stuff throughout his body. He was 46 and rather good, I thought, in the talented Mr. Ripley on screen and Long Day's Journey into Night on stage. Headlines you may not have heard. We may make this a regular feature just because I've been walled up in courtroom 132 all week and emerged blinking into the sunlight of what passes for the real world ten minutes before the show, uh, the president of Germany, Herr Frank-Walter Steinmeier, has launched an attack on AFD, Alternative for Deutschland. Uh, you saw one of their MEPs, Christine Anderson, in a big special on the Mark Stein Show. AFD are currently polling at 20 to 24 percent of voters, which is a big chunk in a parliamentary system. But Herr Frank-Walter Steinmeier, president of Germany, says when our democracy is attacked, the democratic centre, the great majority of our society must take a stand and make clear that we are committed to our democracy. We defend this Germany and we will not allow this country to be ruined by extremist rat catchers. That would be the AFD, the rat catchers, which would presumably make Herr Steinmeier and his crowd, the rats. Dawn Quaver, a senior executive at BBC Television, she's the scheduling coordinator at BBC Three, has called Jews, quote, Nazi apartheid parasites who funded a, quote, hollow hoax. And uh, for good measure, she's called white people a, quote, barbaric, bloodthirsty, rapacious, murderous, genocidal, thieving, parasitical, deviant breed, unquote. Uh, 
Mike Freer, a gay Tory MP for the highly Jewish constituency of Finchley and Golders Green, and also His Britannic Majesty's Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Courts and Legal Services, is quitting the House of Commons after death threats from the group Muslims Against Crusades and an arson attack on his constituency office just last month. Uh, so you can, you can uh, force out an MP for courts and justice, the minister for courts and justice and that kind of stuff, uh, if you do what Muslims Against Crusades did to him. Okay, what do we got? Let us get to your questions. And uh, a lot of questions. <laughs> on, I can't believe this bloody stupid case, as I called it a couple of months back, is still staggering on. But Sandra writes, Hi, from a new club member who has been a fan of yours for eternity. Uh, that's what it feels like, Sandra. It's probably just been a couple of months. But it's great to have you in the Mark Stein Club. And don't be a stranger. And we hope you enjoy it around these parts. Question, says Sandra. Why have you and the defence lawyers not challenged a man's use of the term denier as offensive. I would think it could bias the jury against you. Well, Judith Curry answered that uh, question because man called her a climate denier and she responded to it on the stand. I don't bother with it because uh, my, he keeps saying, oh, <laughs> at the end of every answer, whatever it was the other day, uh, was it Monday? Long week. Uh, Monday, he'd say, you compared me to a child molester, Sandusky. And uh, every time he said it, I thought it made, the more he said child molester, I thought it made, you can't keep saying things over and over. And the more he says denier, I think the more he came across as unhinged. But uh, she actually did answer that question. Judith did answer that question at the end of the day on Thursday. Steve from Manhattan, who's been in court all this week, I think he's gone back to Manhattan, but he was briefly Steve from the District of Columbia, says, Mark, when I told you in the last Clubland q and I'll see you in court, I now realize that should have been, I'll see you at the courtroom door. Yes, indeed. Um, Steve makes an excellent doorman. It's fantastic. He's really found his calling. Uh, he was on the Mark Stein cruise on the Adriatic, uh, just off the coast of Montenegro. So I always sort of think of him as a Montenegrin brigand, because I associate him with the wild coastline of the Adriatic shore. Uh, but in fact, it turns out he's a highly professional doorman. Uh, he can hold two doors at once, which is, uh, it's a bit like being able to uh, juggle more than three balls if you're a juggler, or make your tassels rotate in opposite directions if you're a stripper. And that's how good Steve from Manhattan is at holding the door, or holding both doors for my wheelchair. My question says, Steve, in the courtroom on Wednesday, John Williams, that's uh, lead counsel uh, for Michael E. Mann, the plaintiff. John Williams and I engaged in a prolonged, rather unfriendly staring match. When your friend, attorney Williams, broke it off, he muttered something to Peter Brown Shoes Fontaine. He does wear brown shoes a lot, that guy. He's another. Uh, he's another 
uh, of the man lawyers. I think I heard the word Montenegro, says Steve. Now say what you will about room 132, it's no Wegman. So am I okay or should I start lawyering up? In any case, I hope that by the end of next week, they will be calling the verdict in this case, the miracle of Indiana Avenue. This is a reference to man suing me for a mean look. As he himself testified, uh, everybody has had a mean look, but <laughs> he is the only person uh, who has decided to sue for it. This mean look, he has no idea uh, why the guy gave him a mean look, but he ties it to me. So he's had a mean look. Anna Neiman says, Greetings, dear Mark and team members one and all. I'm so looking forward to hearing your voice this afternoon. Although I have deeply appreciated the efforts in the daily climate change on trial podcasts, I feel in need of proof of life and your unique and spontaneous take on events. You never know, this could just all be a dramatic recreation. Uh, Phelim and Anne could have hired that Australian guy from the Geico Gecko ads uh, to start doing me on Clubland Q&A as well. We'll never know, will we? That's how good it is. Well, it could just be AI. Don't know how good that would be. Can you expound a bit on the anti-slap angle of your defense, uh, continues Anna. It seems to me that this is the essence of man's fundamental error, that he wants to strategically litigate against your and Mr. Simberg's public participation. Stay strong. This is a mighty work you are doing. Well, this takes me, slap for uh, non-Americans means a strategic lawsuit against public participation. And this was a term that arose in the early years of the century uh, as people would bring lawsuits in on public policy issues to take people out of the game. That's basically what happened to me half a lifetime ago in Canada when uh, the Canadian Islamic Congress found a bunch of Islamic law students willing to sue me in multiple jurisdictions. They didn't really care about any of it. The point was to just sue you. So talking about, if you ever wonder why most of the news is trivia, GB News is a very good example of this, just Tories and trivia. And why in fact uh, issues are constructed just to enable the news media to focus on trivia, like Rishi Sunak throwing, you know, the rubbish about uh, deporting these Albanian guys arriving on the south shore of England every night to Rwanda. The reason why uh, the these stories are constructed is so that there's no room to talk about anything that matters, because if you talk about anything that matters, you'll be taken out. And when this started happening, as I said, it's basically uh, the, a slap suit was basically what that Canadian Islamic Congress crowd did with me. They wanted to make the cost of talking about Islam and the West, which is one of the central questions of our time, too high uh, for anybody to be willing to do. Now, it didn't work out for them in that specific case because Ezra and I... Uh, went, uh, as uh, I think it was Ezra put it, went to Magna Carta on their medieval asses. And we, uh, the, we won the lawsuits in uh, on Ontario and British Columbia and at the federal level. 
But there's an awful lot of faint hearts, and we got the law repealed. But there's an awful lot of faint hearts out there who say, oh, God, I wouldn't want to have to do what Stein did. I mean, that's, it costs millions of dollars, and it takes up years of your life. Uh, so I'd, I'd rather, you know, let's, let's just write about trivia. Trivia. We talk about none of the big issues in the news media. Bores the pants off me. As you know, I, I, uh, I stopped going on Fox because I didn't want to talk about Andrew Cuomo's dog, you know, which is apparently the most pressing issue on whatever uh, show that was. And so slap law, anti-slap laws were passed in certain American states to, uh, to, to, so that in the early stages, before you've spent millions of dollars, you could get a case uh, kicked out under the anti-slap law. And when Michael Mann sued me in the District of Columbia 12 years ago, there was a brand new anti-slap law. And so we had this idiot judge complete idiot judge. I think she's retired now. She's on, she, I, I see her name every day when I pass the wall of glory on the first floor of the District of Columbia Superior Court, uh, Natalia Combs Green. And she didn't think the uh, anti-slap law applied in this case. And so uh, three of the then four parties, not me, because I'd already figured out what a dump the District of Columbia is, jurisdictionally speaking. But they decided to test this new law by taking an interlocutory appeal uh, to the DC Court of Appeals uh, to uh, ask the Court of Appeals if the new anti-slap law was appealable, which nobody, it was so badly written, as most American laws are, that nobody knew whether it was appealable or not. And they took four years. I'm already, can, can, uh, can you pass the knitting needles so I can stab my eyeballs out, please? I'm already <laughs> getting mad uh, just thinking about this. But they took four years to decide, oh, no, the case can proceed. So by then you're in a huge hole. So the anti-slap laws aren't going to do it because they are like almost every other aspect of the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt American justice system. They're just a racket. So slap... It is. It was the whole point of Michael Mann suing people is to take them out of the game, and and so it is as Anna says a classic slap case. Uh, but that decision, that ship sailed several years ago. Roy Epen, Doctor Roy, uh, Quebec's doughtiest monarchist, except I think for the parents of that tennis player who's named after. Is it Princess Eugenie, uh, the uh, Duke of York's daughter? Anyway, Dr. Roy says, I hope you're feeling better. I have been quite worried about your health. Uh, <laughs> yes, as, as have I. Uh, given the total lack of evidence, why was this case not dismissed years ago? Is this not the definition of a slap suit? What a waste of judicial resources and your time. Can you get court costs? when man loses, asks Dr. Roy. Um, it is a complete waste of time. I stood up in court on Wednesday when the plaintiff closed and I used the four words that are familiar in uh, many parts of the Commonwealth, including in Malaysia, 
where even in the Sharia family courts that they have there, you can stand up and say, no case to answer. And uh, that is not uh, quite how it works here, but we have filed a motion for a, whatever it's called, judgment as a matter of law, which basically says there is, and the, and the judge who has not yet ruled on that. Um, and uh, I hope he does rule over the weekend because, you know, he's, uh, he's not the strongest judge. And uh, there are times in that court when you just sort of get the feeling that uh, any kind of due process is just sort of unraveling before your eyes. Anyway, I probably shouldn't talk uh, more like that. In theory, Dr. Roy, we could get costs uh, when or if man loses. Um, but in practice, they strongly dislike the so-called English law that apply, you know, and man, of course, uh, Tim Ball was awarded costs, uh, which doesn't which doesn't mean quite the same thing down here. It means lawyers fees and whatnot, the whole thing. Tim Ball was awarded costs in Canada, and uh, Michael E. Mann simply refused to, to pay them when he lost to Tim Ball in a case he brought in a jurisdiction he chose. The deadbeat man refused to pay them, drove Tim Ball to penury and death. He's an evil man. He's an evil, amoral man. Um, and uh, But we are in, uh, you know, the United States, and we are in one of the most unfavorable jurisdictions on the planet uh, for things like uh, getting awarded lawyers' fees. John Barrett writes, Hello, Mark. It seems to me this is a case of defamation rather than the veracity of the hockey graph. Why didn't the plaintiff bring in quote, experts in linguistics or psychology to support his case? And what about the defendants then making their case for free speech as their primary defense? You are doing a great job as your own counsel. Uh, we continue to hope and pray for your return to good health, says John. I'll answer the last bit first. What about the defendants then making their case for free speech as their primary defense? Because in the mad, insane travesty of a constitutional republic to which the United States has been reduced, um, free speech is now seen like an eccentric right-wing fetish. So when you're up against an all-Democrat jury, as you are in Washington, D.C., there's really no point in even raising the issue of free speech because it doesn't even resonate with them. The First Amendment doesn't resonate with them. As you see from all these polls of anybody under 30, 40, 50, 67, uh, it's fine to, you know, as we did in Canada, whenever that was, 15 years ago now, whatever it was, uh, you, you could still find lefties prepared to say, you know, uh, prepared to channel that apocryphal line of Voltaire. Oh, I uh, totally disagree with Mark Stein, but I would fight to the death the right for him to be able to say what he believes. You can't say that to... The, there are no lefties like that now. There are no principled free speech warriors. The whole of our civilization has decayed into a world 
in which people think there are correct stances on subjects such as climate or uh, transgender bathrooms or mass immigration and that therefore because that position is the correct one there is no need to uh, allow alternative ones and that is basically why uh, no one really talks about free speech uh, anywhere, including in this courtroom. As to his case, here's the thing, you're correct. It's a defamation case. He has to prove the elements of defamation, which are quite difficult actually in under under US law for him. But he's he, he can't because he can't prove that, he his awful lawyer, who I do think is wearing out has worn out his welcome with the court because he's boring and arrogant which is not an attractive combination and so he has uh, he's just throwing stuff in there he's a flimflammer who throws in garbage to distract them so he has all these people coming on uh, you know talking about verification of normalization procedures or whatever and he understands that in a courtroom the most important thing is tone. People can't often follow the exact words but they get the tone. So if there's some guy boring the pants off you like Ray Bradley uh, talking about sediment, <laughs> that seems a long day, a long time ago now, but it was the first day. So he had Ray Bradley boring on about sediment, then he had Naomi Oreskes boring on about um, peer review and the size of her house in Massachusetts, which is very large. So when she had Michael E. Mann staying there, uh, she wasn't even aware he was there because her house is so large that all kinds of people, you know, could be, could be Kim Jong-un, could be in the, in, in the uh, attic bedroom and she'd never know about it because her house is so large. Um, boring on about that, and then uh, we had this cross-examination of, uh, of, of uh, Dr. Weiner yesterday, which was designed to uh, bore, um, uh, uh, bore the jury into the ground, because by doing that, the whole point here is tone. If you're talking about stuff that nobody can understand, then they think this is just so far above us. So when man talks in terms that nobody can understand, it means to the average juror, this is how they think, uh, the, the plaintiff, it means that he is taken to be so far above you that he cannot possibly be questioned. We shall see. I mean, you know, who knows? Might work. But that's what they're doing. They're trying, and specifically, because they've got no defamation case to make, they're now trying to run out the clock, boring the jury into the ground, making them think they're the guys who know all the long words and all the technical terms, and therefore they can't possibly be questioned. Uh, I would say that, that, I would once have said that that is un-American, uh, but uh, obviously uh, since the days when I could have confidently said that, uh, an awful lot of Americans, an awful lot, seem to have gotten more, far more compliant and deferential in their attitude to blowhards like Michael E. Mann. 
Uh, let us pause a moment from the passing Charivari for a musical interlude. Uh, the mononymous Melanie died last week at the age of 76. A little over half a century back, Melanie had a moment. Not long, just a year and a half or so, but it was a genuine moment. And for the moment, she was the Melanie which one would have thought was too common a name to be appropriated for a mononymous star. I mean, it's not like Sting or Lulu or Bono or Madonna. Uh, she was Melanie Safka in full, and she was a singer-songwriter, but she sang the songs of others, and others sang her songs. Brand New Key was the biggie, but this was the one from the year before, uh, written with the painter, H.M. Saffer II. And this song uh, hung around and made the charts. Well, it made a chart, the Belgian chart. Well, no, actually, now I think about it, not the Belgian chart, but a Belgian chart, the Walloon bit uh, of the Belgian hit parade. No appeal to the Flemish. Uh, but big with the Walloons, number 14 in Wallonia in 1970. How about that? Number 14 in Wallonia in 1970. Here's Melanie. Look what they done to my song. Look what they done to my song. Well, it's the only thing could do half right and it's turning out all wrong ma look what they done to my song look what they done to my brain ma look what they done to my brain well they picked it like a chicken bone and I think I'm half insane, ma Look what they done to my soul Melanie, singing words and music by Melanie and a song that became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I remember my dad singing along with that at the breakfast table. Not the more psychedelic verses, look what they've done to my brain, ma. I didn't care for those. But the main idea was strong enough that for a while... Everybody sang it. The New Seekers, Ray Charles, Nina Simone, Katerina Valente, Lawrence Welk, Claudine Langer. That's Andy Williams' missus before she shot her ski instructor lover, Spider. And so for a few years, Melanie could put on the latest cover version every morning and say for real, look what they've done to my song, Ma. In France, Maurice Vidalin, a very accomplished parolier. He wrote a lot with Gilbert Becot. Uh, Maurice Vidalin got the gig for the French lyric. He did a lot of Franco versions of Anglo songs in the wee small hours of the morning. Catch a falling star. I was born under a wandering star. Love on the rocks. Uh, in this case, he did a fairly literal translation. Ils ont changé ma chanson. They've changed my song, ma. Dalida had the hit and I like the record but I love to see her do it live because instead of the short intro on the track she'd let the band vamp till ready 
as she took all the time in the world she felt like taking to finally begin singing. top 14 hit in Wallonia. How often do you hear one mononymous singer singing a song by another mononymous singer? But that's how we roll on this show. Dalida 
sings Melanie. Ils ont changé ma chanson. Look what they've done to my song, Ma. Music and words by Melanie and the painter H.M. Saffer II. French lyrics by Maurice Vidalin. Dalida was a beautiful talent who came to a tragic end. She left us a long time ago. Melanie took her leave last week. Mark Stein, live around the planet. It's uh, 25 to 4. Deep State Standard Time here in Washington, D.C. That is 25 to 9. Greenwich Mean Look Time. If you're in aisle 9 of the global time zones. A little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Uh, let's get back to your uh, questions. Eric Dale says, Mark... Uh, what are your thoughts on the recent conviction of Joshua Schulte and his sentence of 40 years for leaking CIA information to WikiLeaks? Where are the Bradley Manning supporters? Moreover, why is it if you lie on behalf of the right people or agenda, you're rewarded, but if you tell the truth that they don't want to get out, you're crucified? You've just answered your own question there, Eric. That's how it works. Uh, as my dear friend Kathy Shadel used to say, uh, it's different when they do it. It's different when they do it. All this stuff, you know, oh, there's no point even pointing out the hypocrisy. They think the right is stupid for still believing that there are first principles. First principles. There are no first principles in American life. It's about power. And until, you know, the right wakes up to that, I was just uh, having this uh, conversation with uh, various parties who've uh, swung by the courtroom this last week. The left is serious about power while the right is talking about principles. And at a certain point, you can do that a little bit, little bit, little bit. You can still talk about constitutional principles that apply to all. You can still talk about equality before the law. But at a certain point, when the left gets really serious about power, which is what is happening now, uh, that pointing out the hypocrisy isn't going to do it for you. You just answered your own question there, Eric. The ABC News article also said this guy was in possession of child pornography, which the Pentagon of the 1970s should have thought of when the Pentagon Papers were leaked. Uh, it, that was a lot more difficult back in the 70s because you'd actually have to get some actual child pornography and actually plant it in the guy's house. Now, uh, basically, we've all got child pornography because uh, as soon as they kick the door down, it'll be on the hard drive of your computer just as they seize it. I don't even believe in any of that anymore. In fact, Tucker and I uh, joked about it. You know, at the time it was, it was, I forget which awful agency of the IC, the intelligence community, when you've got enough of these guys that they've got their own community, uh, you know something's wrong. There shouldn't be an intelligence community. Anyway, uh, some of these uh, guys had been found to have been uh, reading te Tucker's texts and emails. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hope they managed... <laughs> to find the little... Oh, I, I shouldn't really go into that. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, they were found to be reading Tucker's texts and emails, and uh, I joked with him on air uh, that ba basically they could be putting all this porn uh, and whatever on his computer, and you don't know about it. You, wouldn't, you would never know about it until they kick your door down, seize your computer, and, uh, and, and then they've got it. I don't believe any. And with AI, actually, they could have this guy star. The, the AI technology is such that they've undoubtedly got video of him uh, appearing in, uh, you know, child pornography or whatever. I don't believe a word of it. These are rogue agencies. Some of these agencies were created uh, supposedly to uh, wage war on America's enemies. And instead, increasingly, they're waging war on American citizens. Philip Porstian, I hope I pronounced that correctly, says, May God strengthen you and vanquish all your opponents. But moving on to something completely different, in the novel Submission by Michel Houellebecq, a French novel, Soumission, about the first Muslim president of France, uh, I have two questions, says Philip. The narrator remarks upon surprise at the Muslims' seeming tolerance of alcohol at a faculty party in the Sorbonne, which is still a dull party due to the absence of women. Do you believe the author is correct that Islamic France will tolerate alcohol, or is that wishful thinking? The novel mentions Zizi Top. Uh, in the English translation I read. Is that a device of the translator? If so, what was the French group that was an equivalent to ZZ Top? I was surprised that ZZ Top would have been known in France in 2016 or before, but I am not well travelled. Uh, I think it was ZZ Top in the original, Philip. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's ZZ Top in the original novel. Oddly enough, um, ZZ Top uh, are or were uh, quite popular in France because I think they were a Frenchman's idea of what an American rock group should look like. So that actually is ZZ Top that is mentioned in the French novel. As to the bigger question about the Muslims' seeming tolerance of alcohol, I can tell you this from personal experience. I have drunk beer with both uh, Belgian Muslims and with German Muslims. Uh, this would be about, uh, what are we now? I think seven or eight years ago, something like that. Uh, and I take it I could, without much, tr I don't think I've ever drunk beer with French Muslims, but I have no doubt that if I were to wander into the right joint in Marseille or some such, uh, the German Muslims I drank beer with were in Reutlingen in uh, south, uh, what would that be, southwestern Germany, I think. And, um, uh, and they were sort of quite open about it, you know, because they enjoyed beer and they enjoyed getting drunk on beer. They regarded bacon, I had a little conversation, I had a little conversation uh, about this. They regarded bacon as absolutely filthy and they didn't want to go anywhere near it, but they were quite happy to drink beer. Now, you say Muslim seeming tolerance of alcohol. No. Officially, uh, you can't drink alcohol, you can't drink beer, 
But I don't, as these countries Islamize, there will be an intervening stage in which there will certainly be Muslims who drink beer. Jeff Estes writes, Hi Mark, regarding the invasion of America, how soon do you think action will be taken to stem the flow? Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to laugh now till the top of the hour. Here's the problem. The people who will take the action are the so-called opposition party in America. That is uh, the Republican Party. And so the, the, what, you have to, uh, what you have to consider is whether the Republican... Let's just say that America, and again I could keep laughing just till the top of the hour and indeed through the entire weekend, but let's just say <laughs> for the sake of argument, that America held a free and fair election and Donald J. Trump was elected president. You would then have the same situation, you know, uh, and let's just say that he had coattails so that an entirely undeserving Republican Party took the House and took the Senate. So we would be in the same situation we were in from January 20th 2017, where the Republicans held all the levers of power. Uh, did Paul Ryan provide funding for the wall? No, he didn't. Because Paul Ryan thinks that the wall is just some vulgar, embarrassing thing for the rubes. And it's boob bait for the rubes. And then when the rubes have done their necessary job of getting you across the finish line, then you forget about the rubes for two years and you do the bidding of the donors. And the donors, the donors, uh, you know, what do they care what the generality of the population is? Because if you're wealthy at the level of the power players in America, uh, you don't actually interact with any ordinary Americans uh, out there. So what do you care if among the ordinary Americans there are ordinary Paraguayans and ordinary Somalis and ordinary... The point about them is they're ordinary and you don't have anything to do with them. So why do you care whether they're ordinary Americans or ordinary Sudanese or ordinary uh, whatever? It's not... Uh, it's not something you're interested in. It's not something you, you know, you may, you may hire them as your pool boy or whatever once in a while. So the question is, they would have the, the problem, the bedeviling problem of mass immigration, which will destroy every Western nation, and very soon it will simply overwhelm them to the point of collapse. People talk about the border. <laughs> You know, there are Ill Hispanic illegal immigrants working halfway up the Taconic State Parkway in upstate New York. So you've got, uh, you, you've got uh, mass illegal immigration across the southern border penetrating deeper and deeper into the country until 20 minutes shy of the Canadian border. How serious? The problem is not just that the Democrats are in favor of open borders, but so is the Chamber of Commerce wing of the Republican Party. So is the Wall Street Journal wing of the Republican Party. We're supposed to be excited 
I think that this new speaker has got some sort of uh, tax bill he's coming up with. That's not a priority for people who think they're losing their country. Uh, it, it, really, it really isn't. So, you know, uh, good luck with that. But the rate of people that, the, the, the rate at which people are coming in, when you're moving millions and millions in, I said this last week, I don't want to repeat myself, but if you think of the Electoral College, it's designed to balance the uh, interests of small population rural states with big population urban states. Uh, and there's a reason for that, because if the Democrats ever succeeded in abolishing the Electoral College, then half a million voters, well, let's be bipartisan about it, half a million voters in Wyoming or half a million voters in Vermont are going to be entirely swamped just by three months intake across the Rio Grande. You, you, you lose your country. Uh, JC of Western Supermare says, Hi Mark, I would have loved to attend in person to witness the man case, but your comments about the state of the DC hellhole deterred me from crossing the pond. That's a Western Supermare in England. Um, <laughs> you're not missing anything. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, I have no idea what my, my uh, kid came here for, what my, all my kids came here for the sort of uh, whatever it is, the eighth grade school trip to Washington, D.C. I've no idea what they managed to do for three days uh, here. Uh, I do, says J.C., however, hope to attend the High Court in London to observe your important case against the free speech party poopers at Ofcom. Uh, your application is for judicial review of their so-called ruling on your alleged breaches of the Broadcasting Co. Can you, Code. Can you comment on the general procedure we can expect to see. Um, <laughs> I can't really because uh, I can't multitask at the moment. When you're in a case like this, uh, it's barely possible to unitask. So I wake up each, I wake up at uh, somewhere between three and four each morning with uh, sort of bits and bobs of the case that have been churning around my head in the few hours sleep I've had and you get straight on to that and it takes you through the rest of the day and then at the end of the day you have to think about who's who are the witnesses who are coming the next day so I'm, I'm I've I can't really think about this uh, new case until the old case is done or at least in the interlude between the end of this trial and the filing of the appeal um, but I will let you know about it as uh, I know more about it. In the meantime, says JC of Western Supermare, in between the gripping trial podcasts, I've been listening to some of your Song of the Week back catalogue. I particularly enjoyed It Was a Very Good Year by Irvin Drake and its transformation from pop folk number to a veritable classic. Thanks to Sinatra's ear for a great song and the appropriate arrangement. Yeah, uh, thank you, John, for that. Uh, I, 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 you know, I met Irving Drake a number of times over the years at one thing or another. I remember him as a very a sort of slight, a slight and dapper man. And uh, he wrote a lot of songs and... Uh, but but he understood that it was a very good year, had become a classic thanks to 
that arrangement by Gordon Jenkins uh, for Sinatra. Oh, I see that uh, John Creasy asks a cheeky bony bonus question. What do you think of Tom Bromhead's depiction of you in Anne and Phelim's excellent podcast? I note that he's Australian, hence why he's a tad over the top with the lardy dar gunner Graham. CF, it ain't half hot, mum. <laughs> That's a fantastic, that was a uh, series, uh, a, a, a British television series uh, about English soldiers in India. Very, you, you, well, it can't be shown now. <laughs> That's how funny it was. Anyway, um, you don't know, I, 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 I have no sort of objective angle on that. I have a bit of a problem in that I've lived and worked in so many places that wherever I am, I sound like I'm from somewhere else, which is the sort of hardest accent uh, for any actor to do. And uh, I mentioned that about a year ago, I, a little over a year ago, uh, I, I was sitting next to the great uh, Dame Maureen Lipman, great actress, uh, great English actress, Jewish actress, so she's finding her native land a bit uncomfortable these days. But uh, uh, Maureen uh, said to me at one point, she goes, what happened to your voice? You sound like a man pretending to be Irish and not pulling it off. And I said rather indignantly, well, I am Irish. What are you on about? Um, but I, I, I but that's the basic problem. Wherever I am, I sound like I'm from somewhere else. So I am thrilled uh, to be uh, to be played by Tom Bromhead, who has done the voice of the Geico Gecko, which all our American listeners will know about, and that is uh, just about as I never thought my life. Uh, uh, since I've been ensnared in the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt American justice system has been pretty awful. But uh, as this trial dwindles down to the fag end, in the British, not the American sense, uh, as it dwindles down to the fag end, what a thrill it is to be played by the guy who does the voice of the Geico Gecko. Does it get any better? <laughs> I find my consolations where I can. So thank you very much uh, for that. David says, hi Mark, greetings from down under. I hate to be negative given your stellar performance embarrassing Michael Mann in court, but it must be a tad galling that all that happens when you and Rand Simberg defeat Mann is that he will appeal the verdict thereby subjecting you to another $5 million or so to make it to the 2035 trial. Is it a lay-down misery that he will have a legal basis for appeal, or is there a chance that the appeal is rejected and that is the end? If that's a bit sensitive to include in a podcast, I look forward to hearing the answer at the Stein Cruise which my wife and I are super excited to be attending. Ah, I look for, P.S. just got my Liberty Stick. It's a cracker. Thank you for that endorsement, David, but it's too late because we are all out of Liberty Sticks. Uh, limited edition, they're all gone. Uh, and they will ne'er be heard from again. But I do look forward to seeing you at the Mark Stein Caribbean Cruise, which sails from Fort Lauderdale in Florida at the end of the month. 
The thing with the appeal is this. They're going to appeal. They're all talking about it's uh, it's extremely frustrating. I just want yes, no, guilty, not guilty. That's it. Let's get the hell on with it and close this thing. But it is uh, you would have to have a very good legal reason uh, to take this to. I mean, in theory, if, for example, if they awarded Michael Mann a Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump sized uh, amount of damages. So, you know, they awarded a 150 gazillion dollar amount of damages. You could take that to appeal and you could get that reduced to something more affordable, like say 75 gazillion dollars in damages or whatever. Um, but there, the appeals courts are very reluctant to uh, overturn a jury verdict unless there are uh, very clear legal uh, reasons. So it's it's uh, appealing a jury verdict is slightly more difficult for them than appealing a bench uh, version. Uh, Ted from Minnesota says, happy weekend, Mark. I hope your health is improving. No, it isn't. It's getting worse each week with this lousy trial. Uh, <laughs> Um, from the snippets I've seen, it sounds like you are kicking butt and taking names. I'm very impressed with your cross approach, your cross examination approach. What emotions did you have finally facing off against the despicable man? I thought you handled it well. Keep up the good fight. I'm way beyond emotions. It's hard to, it's hard to have emotions when you've been in it uh, for 12 years. And that's how I feel about a lot of the commentary on the case. Some of the commentary is very good, but other people make points. So why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? And you think, oh, yeah, 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 that's the point I might have done, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago. But uh, at this stage, I'm kind of way beyond that. It's become, you know, it's, it's like all the thing. America is a land not really of law. It's a land of legalisms. And so people... It's a, it's a land of tedious and meretricious legalisms. No disrespect to my many legal friends, including just the Minnesota ones, like uh, Michelle Buckman and uh, John Hinderacker. Um, Chris Hall says, the plaintiff's cross of Weiner, Dr. Weiner, on minutiae that delved into issues of renormalization of principal components was mind-numbingly tedious for me, and I've actually calculated principal components. Will there be any hazard pay compensation for the jury to have to put up with this? Well, as I said, this is their strategy. The, the great thing about Dr. Weiner is he explains this complicated stuff in terms that everybody can understand. Now, in his first day on the stand, he came on late in in the afternoon after a, a lot of you know awful procedural folder roll and the jury were having a pretty boring time of it because they're just walled up in the jury room while we're thrashing this rubbish out and he electrified them when he started he managed to explain statistics and probabilities he was 
in terms they could understand. He was talking about sports. He was talking about politics with Hillary Clinton, uh, where he said the you know, he, he explained it very simply. He said all the polls showed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And the, there was no question over the two six, 2016 election. Uh, she was the winner and it was just a question all the polls varied in was how big her landslide was uh, going to be. And he said uh, at the time that that's, that's because they had uh, undervalued the uncertainties. This applies, which is correct, that, that in fact it was where all these things, polls, graphs, all this stuff goes wrong is by giving the impression that things are more certain than they are. So he, he talked about sports, he talked about the Grammy Awards, he talked about things, uh, areas he'd worked in, and he made it all plain to them and so that they could understand it and all the rest of it. And then this complete wanker called Patrick Coyne, he's the guy who was shoving around Phelan, he came on and he starts asking uh, Dr. Wine on cross-examination to talk about the renormalization of principal components. And you can basically feel all the life draining out of the jury box. You can see because they don't want to have to think about this rubbish. And, it, and all the life drains out of them and it's there on the floor. And what he's, he, they're running out the clock. They have no case. Their case is, look, Michael Mann is way brainier than you guys. He's so brainy, he's a Nobel Prize winner. And, <laughs> and uh, he's so brainy, he's got letters after his name. Uh, and we're sitting here talking about renormalization of principal components, and you have no idea what that is. We could be talking about principles of component renormalization, uh, and you would still have no idea what it is. But the fact that we're talking so far above you, it means we are so brainy that you could not possibly find that we had done anything wrong. Dan Phillips says, I thought the statisticians parallel with the person walking down a road, then taking predestined lefts or rights at each fork was brilliant, all to make the purported climate analysis objective outcome determinative, says Dan. Yeah, that's again, that's what uh, Dr. Weiner did on the stand at the end of the afternoon. Uh, and it, it certainly, as I said, he, uh, well, I think uh, as uh, people have said in comments and everywhere else, he, he exited the courtroom that day as a kind of rock star. Paul Interline says, if they don't have proof of damages, how did this fiasco get past summary judgment? I was sued for defamation by the uh, America's biggest cockwomble, Carrie Katz. He also had no proof of damages, and the whole theory was they didn't have to show damages until they came to trial. Well, they came to trial and they showed no, uh, no serious amount of, uh, of damages, as, uh, as we pointed out on cross-examination. And so their case was a bust, but, but the judge was always very careful to say, you know, they don't have to produce the proof of damages until trial. In this case, 
the judge has been saying for a year now that he can't see uh, any damages on man's part and their whole thing was well we'll show damages we'll show damages well they got to court and they made their case and they have no damages and in fact they perjured themselves and in the case of a man's appalling lawyer committed a felony under DC law it's a lie to present, uh, it's a crime to present false evidence to a jury. And Mann's counsel, uh, Williams, presented false evidence. As the judge himself remarked in court the other day, in open court, he was stunned, that's his word, stunned, to see them put $9 million next to a lost grant when in fact it was $112,000. And then they say, oh, that was just an accident. Well, yeah, we just got a bit confused with the numbers. But it was a good faith accident. Yeah, we didn't really mean to do it. It's just, you know, perjurer and a criminal. Punishable uh, for a lawyer to lie in open court, that's punishable by three to 30 years in jail. Um, uh, and uh, it's, it's pathetic that. Norman Fenton. Professor Fenton says, You saw that Channel 4 in a recent interview with him uh, said Michael Mann, along with other scientists, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 for his work on climate change. Now, while I'm sure you think Ofcom should be disbanded, as I do, I'm wondering nevertheless if you think it is worth putting in a formal complaint to them about this blatant lie they presented. Yeah, you know, the state of the media, it's worse than I've ever known it. There is no media in the sense, there is no press in the sense we use the word until fairly recently. Uh, he, he is routine, the, the interesting thing is that they only called him a Nobel Peace Prize winner because normally it gets elided to Nobel Prize winner. So as I said in my opening statement, they're, they're trying to pretend that he's in the same pantheon as uh, Einstein or Marie Curie or uh, Francis Crick or my great compatriot Sir Frederick Banting, the discoverer of insulin for its uses in treating diabetes. The idea that man, a hack, is in the same pantheon as that is ridiculous, but it's necessary to them. We are going into an extremely dark world. You know, and again, this is why I don't waste your time waving your stupid constitution at me, because the constitution has been perverted uh, beyond all real world meaning. And the constitution has enabled the idea of getting five judges to divine uh, whether such and such is in accord with an 18th century uh, document. This is at the expense of maintaining that, you know, which leads to Amy Coney Barrett and uh, the Chief Justice uh, siding with the open borders crowd the other week. But the, there's a more, um, you know, there's a more basic problem with this in that even to sort of frame things in an 18th century context overlooks the radicalism of the world they're driving us into. We had a question which I haven't got to 
but it's an important one about the European farmer protests, which, as you know, uh, Ava and I talked about regularly, have talked about, talked about regularly these last two years on the Mark Sign Show at a time when nobody else did, because it doesn't get more basic than this. They don't want you to be able to control uh, the, the, your dietary choices. That's how basic that is. They want to be able to control what you put in your stomach. So the idea of living in wherever you happen to live and having local farms that grow your food is not congenial to them. The Dutch Prime Minister, former Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, talking about how he, uh, the plan is to have five global food hubs. In other words, so that everything you stick in your gob becomes the equivalent of a Pfizer jab. You don't know what else they're putting in there, but they'll be putting Pfizerized stuff. I mean, it has a just regular processed food, such as, you know, you buy in crap you like, uh, hasn't actually worked out terribly well for those populations that become dependent on it. Eating processed food has led to an epidemic of, uh, you know, childhood diabetes in America, because it's not good, actually, to have your food made in a factory. It isn't really a good idea. And when that factory, it's not even going to be a factory in some place that's reasonably nearby, like uh, Michigan, say, uh, it's instead going to be a factory in some country you've never heard of that's part of the uh, five-unit global food hubs of so-and-so. And, and the, uh, the idea that they're serious about that, they're serious about ending freedom of movement. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, about Klaus Schwab talking about this saying how wonderful this will be. You won't, don't have to worry, you know, the uh, whole electric car thing is just an interim phase before the end of private transportation because you don't really need to go anywhere. And at that point, there won't be all these tailbacks on California freeways because all the freeways will have been grassed over and they will be parkland. There'll be parks that you'll able, instead of sitting in traffic, you'll be able to go to that park and, uh, assuming there's no virus going around, sit on the bench. And Klaus Schwab talks like that. The problems, the ambition of the guys who run the world is leaving behind. We are entering a new phase in human history. And unfortunately, <laughs> it's, it, we are. We are entering a new phase in human history in which they're pretty confident that things you took for granted, no matter how poor you were, like freedom of movement, okay, you couldn't afford to go to the Maldives for three weeks, but you could afford to, you know, get in your car and go to the adjoining county. They're pretty confident that although, and you could afford, if you don't, if you don't like the price chopper in this town, uh, you can go to whatever it's called, Michael Mann's Wegmans supermarket, three towns away. They're ending all that. We are moving into a new phase of human history. And the, the conservatism, I saw another question, I can't remember who, they want to know why conservatives weren't covering this case. Well, 
One of the reasons is uh, that, unfortunately, it's you know it gets a little complicated covering something that's been going on for twelve years. I don't blame them for that. People are entitled to focus on what they're interested in. But I do blame conservative media in America for focusing overwhelmingly on trivia and not understanding things uh, in terms of the big underlying realities, which are we have changed so much so fast that we have actually become unmoored uh, and and we we have galloped so far down the stream of human history, you know. Basically, instead of uh, going with the flow, which is always in one direction, but we've basically accelerated way ahead of the flow, and we're approaching Niagara Falls and don't even know it. <laughs> okay, on that cheery note. Uh, Mark Stein alive around uh, the planet, 11 minutes past the hour, a little more Melanie. As I said, uh, she was a singer-songwriter whose songs were sung by others and who sang others' songs. This one I hadn't thought about for a long time until one night at the Kirby Center in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, five years ago on tour with Dennis Miller. It was a great show, the Wilkes-Barre one, and uh, I came off stage on one of those great post-performance highs. Uh, when you're touring around, you often run into fellows who are also touring around uh, because they get in a day early or you have to stay another night or whatever, and so whoever's preceding or succeeding you at the venue uh, is the only thing to do in town. So at the, uh, at the meet and greet, after the event in Wilkes-Barre, along with all the various Miller and Stein fans, uh, the rock group Kansas came up and said how much they had enjoyed uh, the show by Dennis and me, and we had some photos taken. This was a big song for Kansas, a Billboard Top 10 hit in 1978, and almost 30 years later, Melanie decided she'd like to sing it. Dust in the wind.
Sings Kansas. Words and music by Kerry Livgren. All we are is dust in the wind. I do wish that were true. I wish I were a speck of dust that could be wafted into the ether, but instead I feel like a speck of dust with 900 weight tying me down to this hellhole of a capital city. The late Melanie Safka is, I hope, in a better place. That'll do it for our show. Stick with Stein Online over the weekend. Rick McGuinness on the movie beat. Stein Song of the Week. And then we're back in court for the fourth week of Man versus Stein. Don't miss Amy K. Mitchell's Evening Court Reports and Anne McElhenney and Phelan McAleer's Daily Podcasts. You've left it too late for our limited edition Stein Online Liberty Stick. Every one of them signed and numbered by me is gone. Uh, But we do have our official Stein versus the Stick trial merchandise. We ordered it a long time ago in the first half decade of this case. Uh, So we even have Stein versus the Stick mouse pads. Mouse pads. If you remember those, we probably have a Stein versus the Stick hula hoop or a Stein versus the Stick buggy whip lying around somewhere. If you don't fancy those, there's always a Stein Online gift certificate. Stay safe, stay free, stay well, stay out of court. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.